Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of the Tapecast. My name is Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock, and I have a great announcement for you guys. Uh, in, a, in something that is very befitting of this podcast, we are actually sponsored this week by another podcast. If you listen to the Matt Harmon episode, you would not at all be surprised to find out that the Pat Mayo Experience is actually sponsoring the show. Pat is a, a great pal of mine. If you're getting ready for the U.S. Open, if you enjoy really any sort of fantasy shenanigans, you should listen to Pat's show because uh, there'll be more actionable advice in his show, especially this week. Then there will be on uh, on the Tate Cast. Pat's a good guy, and uh, honestly, even if you don't want to listen to it, give him give give my buddy Pat uh, some clicks. Our guest this week is none other than Brandon McCarthy, pitcher for the Atlanta Braves, frequent fantasy football player, and um, I mean someone I like to at least think is generally uh, uh, my pal, but definitely a, a great guy, a great interview. You might notice throughout the first half of the interview. The audio on my segment of the podcast is uh, is a little weird. That uh, is entirely my fault. My levels were low on my microphone, and I didn't realize it until about halfway through the interview. That's what happens when you produce a podcast on your own without a producer. But uh, without any further ado, here is the interview with Brandon. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much for joining me, man. I really appreciate it. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm doing well. Everything's going good. So uh, it's not uncommon, at least in my experience, to know that pro baseball players do take fantasy football seriously. But you have uh, you've really taken a step further by involving yourself in in football Twitter. What's your kind of story with fantasy in general, and more importantly, why do you why do you mix with us plebes on Twitter? Uh, the mixing is more because there's a lot of good stuff to learn. I like a lot of the different personalities in there. Um, and it's, it's, I find fantasy takes up so much of my fall, late summer, fall, and then it, like, it just, it's the perfect thing during baseball schedule after you've been going for four and a half months. Every day has just been the exact same thing. It's wake up field. And then it's all of a sudden fantasy football happens and you start to realize like preseason's coming, camp's coming, like, oh, there's other things that I can pay attention to. That means I don't have to worry about myself for a little bit. I can pay attention to something, something new in this whole world that doesn't involve me. And that's just kind of a fun allure for a lot of guys with fantasy. And fantasy is a huge thing with um, baseball players. Usually the teams are really competitive. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on, but for me, it's just, I like just learning about a whole new world that exists with, with you guys who, that's your whole world. That's things that you really pay attention to. And I can just try and learn more from you guys than, than I would just searching on my own. You like, know, you know, I'll, I'll definitely say this. You know more about fantasy football than I could ever know about the world of professional baseball. You, you hold a lot of that information in, and I kind of wonder what percentage of the guys in the locker room are as into it as you are knowing like you know a lot of the stats you know a lot of like even like the theories like zero rb like where would you rank in terms of like fantasy comprehension in a regular uh locker room um 
I would say probably upper 10%. That doesn't mean that it, like, shows up results-wise, I guess. <laughs> sure, yeah. My, like, maybe, like, understanding of more of the concepts that you guys pass around or, like, they gain popularity year-to-year or just that are data-driven that come up by just probably by nature of of following a lot of you guys and then reading a lot of your guys' content. I just kind of gain at least an understanding. A lot of it is hard for me to to put into actual action on a year-to-year basis. Uh, without playing in 10 leagues, just doing it in three to four, I kind of get like, I get mixed up as to what I actually want to do. But um, there's a, there's a decent amount of guys that, that have a lot of that knowledge, but a lot of it's still just a very, you know, they're really competitive with it, but it's still a pretty casual thing. And they might read their one website. I think one or two websites, they get there, follow a few guys and then, and then put their team together. But some are still just really good at doing that. What's the what's the team that has had the most competitive league in the locker room? Like, I remember you were telling me that the Dodgers league was pretty competitive. Is that the most competitive one you've been inside the clubhouse? Yeah, the Dodgers league, bless you. And mainly Farhan Zaidi, the, the GM there in, in L.A., who I know somebody did an article about how he's won the league the last three years. And it really, he's he's the smartest guy in every room he walks into, and that's not as a I'll put down that's an actual statement. He just is ungodly smart. And fantasy football, I don't – I'm trying to get him to tell me since I'm not on the team anymore. Is there something proprietary he has? What's he using? What numbers? Like something that he's using that uh, makes his team good every year. But he just – his roster churn, he turns his, his lineups over constantly. Players that you don't think are going to hit somehow just hit. And then he, he just – I don't know, even teams that have been decimated by injuries, he just somehow gets through it and then ends up winning a championship anyways. And, and that that whole clubhouse was pretty pretty competitive. There's usually in any given year there's maybe one or two dead fish teams from the get go and then otherwise it's been pretty pretty good. Is Clayton Kershaw good at fantasy football? That's like that's like a very pressing question for me. He is not. Um he actually, um, so he always partners up with uh, the Dodgers video coordinator, who pays attention, who's a good fantasy player. They pay attention, so they, um, they, and then I believe they had a third co-owner a couple years ago, and they were pretty good. Then two years ago, they had a defeated season, which was the greatest. Um, <laughs> well, he's like insanely competitive too, so I'm sure he didn't take that really well. He didn't, but like he's not. He's not hands-on with this. He doesn't. He's like, not sending trash talk emails. No, he's he's letting it go. He wants them to draft as many Cowboys as they can because he's a Cowboys fan. And and then last year they were, um, he had a little more pressure put on him. And then the team was a little bit better, but not by a lot. And but his partner was the guy that he reads a lot of different stuff. So he's a fun guy to talk to with. And then you can just talk trash with Gersh for his team just not being as good as it should be. So I actually co-own a team in a league with a, a former baseball player, uh, and it was not uncommon to get a trade proposal from him or a, a message board post within kind of 10 minutes of a game ending. Is that an indication of how seriously some of the guys take things? Like, is like, like in the clubhouse, would you say fantasy is like top 10 in discussion topics in the clubhouse? Oh, yeah. I would say once once week three of preseason starts, um, I would say it's top three of, I mean, it, it kind of takes over 
I've been in clubhouses that we had. This is actually when I first started, which was my first year playing was probably 2008, I think, like, or 2007. 2007 and 8, there were guys that were fantasy obsessed there, and they wanted to do mock drafts. We were doing, we were doing pre-picks before picks before picks. Like, it was this weird, just every day we did a new thing. It was like drawing numbers to draw the numbers of X data draw, just so we had something to do. Um, and then there were mock drafts after mock drafts, which was nonsense to do with all guys that were in your league. And But it was... It Sundays, Sunday day games, I think that's my favorite thing to think. If you watch games around the league, just know that almost every baseball player that you're watching out there in between innings is running in and at least checking to see who did what and then just asking someone specifically, you know, what did, what did so-and-so do? What did, and even during the playoffs, I mean, that's just, it's going and it's, it's such an easy way to not think about yourself for a little while. Um, that it's just it's easy for that to become addictive for people who are just have to be self-obsessed in sports. And that's like a that's even kind of like a like a psychological removal in the middle of these like intense games. Like Scherzer was talking like he quoted to the media the other day about how in between innings he was like watching the Caps game in the clubhouse. And it is really interesting to me in baseball how these athletes have no problem identifying with other sports and with like actively following other sports, but you don't really get a ton of that in other American sports. And I kind of wonder why that is. And if you have a theory on it, I I don't think we would as much like if, if we only had to play one day a week or three or four days, like maybe a little bit less where it's like there's days where you feel like a normal citizen. Um, Like today being an off day, this feels like a normal day. I don't need to find something else to pay attention to. Uh, I don't have to think about myself so I can get up. I can have a normal day, play with the family. Like you just kind of live life normally. But then I know the next however many days go right back into this baseball schedule. So this this big eight-hour lump that um, is baseball obsessive. When you're at baseball, all your thoughts are pretty personal, like just to yourself, what can I do to get better? What am I doing? It's all part of my routine. So you need these little escapes for that. I don't know if you need it as much in other sports. I'm sure you do to an extent, but if for six days a week as a football player, you just, you go in in the morning, you have video session, you do training and then you're home. Like there's still a sort of a semblance of a normal day with a normal job. Maybe you don't need um, to have that much of an escape, but I could be wrong on that. Maybe some of them were, I mean, I know some of them were playing fantasy baseball, but it's definitely not anything close to the numbers that we're obsessed with, with fantasy football. Yeah, it definitely has – it has to do with the amount of, like, downtime and the amount of time you're committed to a location. And I was actually also wondering, is there a difference um, in, like, activity, not just in fantasy but in general? Like, is the, is the split between pitchers and hitters, like, massive? I know, for example, like, a lot of pitchers play golf and are, like, very good golfers, and I kind of think that's born out of, like, having more time to not be physically, like, doing the sport they're paid to do. Yeah, the golf, your golfing, at least historically, made sense because it was if you're not starting every till the fifth day, you've got four days in there that um, you still have stuff to do. Or if, especially when guys didn't work out as much, it was easy. You just pop out, you play golf, and then go to the field. And hitters having to play every day, they couldn't waste their energy doing that. So it was easier for pitchers to play golf. But but no, I'd say with fantasy, it's pretty well it's split pretty evenly. It's pitchers, they, uh, position players. I don't think there's any real any real divide that leads one way or the other. Fair enough. Uh, so let's let's get into something a little bit more serious, a little bit more relevant to what you were actually paid to do. 
there was a there was a time on uh, on Twitter when you kind of became like a, a poster boy for the analytics community because you were a baseball player who actually checked fan graphs. You knew, um, you know, a lot of the results of your pitch types. And I think that a lot of analytics work is obviously super valuable and important. And that's something that we talk about a lot on this show. So what would you say is the general attitude towards things like that in the clubhouse right now, not amongst coaches and, and staff, but amongst players, you know, about pitch values and launch angle and exit velocity and, you know, these kind of newer batted ball kind of data stats that we're getting now. Uh, I would say there's a lot of curiosity, a lot of interest um, depends on how the, how the information is disseminated to the player. Um, most of them will bristle if it's like Brian Kenny on TV saying it, cause it doesn't, uh, it feels like someone who hasn't played before is just talking about something he doesn't know about, and that's a common theme with baseball players. Like, does this person seem like someone I would trust, I guess? And But if it's the front office coming to them and they've had helpful stuff before and saying, listen, this is what you're doing, this is what you need to do, or vice versa, like, um, then they're pretty receptive to it. Um, I think people are starting to see more that it's just information. It's the same as if you throw a pitch and you turn and check the radar gun, I mean, you turn, you just went for data right there. It just, it's a simple thing to grasp, but it's not that much different than to look and just see, okay, well, his, he hits the ball really hard or he doesn't, or I gave up a hit and that ball wasn't hit hard at all. And like, this number shows me it. Um, all of every, every player is sort of unique in it, but there's a lot more now who are willing to dig into, to think themselves or, or be taught those things because they see the value and their, uh, it has in their careers going forward. So, for an example of how a team would disseminate that information, how did the conversation with the Yankees about your cutting fastball go? Was that your idea? Was that their idea? Like, kind of tell me how that conversation went. It was basically I showed up and they handed me a big binder um, that was just a lot of data on myself, and almost every little section had like a um, – an analysis of what this data was showing me. And then there was like a larger overview, which was we've looked at the times that you were good and you did this a lot. We've looked at the past few months were even bad. You weren't doing this. And then there was bad luck in place. So let's do this. And we think this could do X, X, and X. And it was, I mean, it was, it was a lot of words and a lot of numbers to boil it down to just simply throw your cut, let's throw your cutter more. Um, and that's kind of the beauty in all these. I mean, you have these, these huge analytical departments, you have 15, 20, 20 people buried in a room pulling out numbers. And it's all stuff that we would, you know, most baseball players would never understand because that's not what we're brought up. In. Yeah. You guys are baseball players. But then yeah. And we're, I mean, a lot of us weren't college educated, educated. And even if we were, it wasn't in that, it wasn't in data sets and just compiling numbers and statistics. It was, um, and then their job is to compile all this into a simple fact for you of this guy likes to throw changeups behind in the count, or that, you know, you can do this. You can throw more curveballs. You can do, um, just give you a one sentence, two sentence takeaway and just see if you can start to put that in play because a lot of those things are just moving. Um, you can show someone a huge data set and show someone a ton of information, but it's basically just don't hit on 17 and blackjack. And you're like, Oh, that's the one sentence takeaway. I just won't do this anymore. Um, and so that's their, their job is to get all this information and compile it into easily digestible things for the player. 
So are there teams that are better at transmitting that information than others? Are there are there teams that do have analytics departments but are unable to get that product out onto the field because either the data department or the coaching department is unable to enact that data in a meaningful way to the players? There probably is, but not not being in those organizations. I don't know you know, I don't know what's being attempted in some places. Um you know, some places just don't have um, information and there's been you see teams slowly getting up to speed or a new front office comes in and all of a sudden the team gets better and a lot of the time I think that's the biggest reason is you just come in with some some information that you can just give to the players and like hey this is why you're bad this is why you're good let's do less of this and more of this and all of a sudden players get better and it's this hasn't been some magic one it's just been telling them stuff that should have been fairly obvious but might have been missed in past years yeah, I think that's reasonable, too. I think an idea that has been proposed a lot before, I'm not the first person to say this, but is the way to get players to understand and embrace analytics is to frame it to them in a way of saying, you're really good at this thing, so you should do this thing more, instead of approaching them saying, you're really bad at this thing, so do this thing less. Like I think if you bring analytics into a, a player that way, it seems like it'll be much more successful if you ask them to emphasize what it is that they already do well. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. I mean, that's, we're all, I mean, we're very sensitive. We want, and we're all kind of little artists in our way. You have to talk to us ways that are coddling and it, it makes sense. And it's just, if you come to a player with the sense of here, we're trying to make you better. And here's an easy way to try this. Like, your pitch X sucks, stop throwing it, but your other ones are good. Well, then all of a sudden, like, you just you leave that in their hands. Like, it's their job to actually take what you're giving them or what they've given you. And then if you apply it, all of a sudden you're doing better, then you just it creates a, a relationship of trust and foster something there. They're like, all right, these guys know what they're talking about. Look, I'm better. And whether or not they realize how much nonsense went into getting you this information, um, doesn't really concern them it's just like oh i guess some data went in but yeah i'm just doing this lesson this is good and if and obviously if the results favor them right like if if the results come out they start doing this thing they start performing better no no one's gonna have a problem with that that's like not even an athletics thing that's just a life thing yeah it's i mean there's times where guys will it's not that they push back it's that you just don't want to give outside credit i've seen it a few times where guys were given something simple to execute they do it and then they're better, and they still their mentality is kind of like, yeah, well, I got better. Like, I'm doing this, this, and this better. It's not because of this. And like, well, maybe, but most likely it's this foundation of you've gotten rid of the bad thing or you're doing more of the good thing. It's making you better. But either way, however you get there, I don't care. I don't know if a team cares if they're the ones getting credit for for doing things. It's just whatever. Just give us the end result. Give us the product on the field, and then – and we'll take it, like, if we have to give this guy more tips over time or give him more information, then fine. But um, for the most part, yeah, guys are responsive and just – and if you're not, you frankly, I mean, you're out pretty quick. And that's the thing you've seen – I've seen guys push back, you know, here is something that will definitely make you better, and guys just aren't on board with doing it. And then um, a lot of those guys don't play anymore. They're just not even in affiliated baseball because it – it becomes such a gap in what you can do when so many teams have this information that you can't do it, well, then nobody wants to have you. I actually think that idea that you just mentioned of guys not reacting to the data and not 
putting it into their game is really more prevalent now maybe than it's ever been because, uh, you know, the math of baseball is really starting to be solved. You know, pitchers are gunning for strikeouts more than they ever have. Strikeouts are way up, and hitters are even really starting to hit the same way. They're, they're approaching the plate with the idea that a strikeout is okay. They're really trying to increase their launch angle. And so my question to you is, is that something that you have personally witnessed where everyone is kind of starting to try and play the same way, or is that more overblown from our you know our media outside statistics perspective i don't know that everyone is trying to but you definitely see more guys at least going to someone who picks someone else's swing and going to this idea of let's get the ball in the air um pitchers pitching for strikeouts it's become more certainly more prevalent and it just keeps like creeping up up and up and i don't know if we're at the tipping point yet where it's going to start to fade the other way um or if it's coming soon, but I feel like it certainly will. I mean, baseball still, it just, it, it keeps evolving and it has to, like, and you can't have 30 copycat teams because the smaller teams and the teams who aren't, it, then it just, it goes right back to the money. The bigger teams with the money are going to be better than the smaller teams just because they have better players. And they give the same information with better players, the better players are going to win. Um, so I think you're going to have to have a shift where smaller teams go back to, they play a little bit different style of baseball. You can still have a few guys in your lineup who are all, launch angle base there you can take high strikeouts you can do these things but they also have to be able to like five guys in the lineup have to be able to hit with two strikes consistently like there just has to be more balls in play and see if that like um and so maybe you scout differently based on that i don't i just think we're gonna have to see some of those things happen otherwise you're just gonna have this similar to what we had in the early 2000s where it was you know you had 30 teams built the same way more or less and the best teams with the best money just became the best teams every year because they had more money. So you have to – eventually teams will have to start to shift the new way. So if you don't have an answer to this question, that's okay. But let's say this scenario that you and I are talking about continues to progress and, you know, like the three true outcome percentage for hitters league-wide becomes like 65% or something. And five years from now, you are – you're done pitching and you're hired as like a – a manager or you know a head analytics guy or a consultant for a baseball team what is your what is Brandon McCarthy's suggestion to combat you know the high strikeouts launch angle thing that all the rich teams are doing I think it's like lineup construction in terms of how many guys you have to have the leash to do that and if you have truly nine guys eight guys whatever that can hit that way and it works then by all means like remember if not if we just square peg around hole, if we have three guys who can or two guys, those guys hit that way. Other guys, we need you to be, you can't try and follow this mold. Like if you're hitting the ball in the air, you're not strong enough to get out. Um, and it's wasted at bats or you're just striking out just constantly. And it's wasted at bats. Then I think, all right, we have no need for this anymore. Like we at least have to, if we're going to get out 27 times in this game, and everybody else is striking out 13, Maybe we strike out six and then just see if more balls in play create anything for us. If we become better at that, uh, I, I think some of the success to the Braves earlier this season, I don't know if this was just a byproduct of players we had actually had, but we're just, a, we're a very aggressive team. So we didn't strike out near as much as other teams early in the year. And I watched a lot of pitchers pitch against us. Oh, two, one, two counts. And you just see a few foul balls or ball put in play. And you could see a frustration with the pitcher because the game, the last few years has just built this rhythm of like it's 0-2-1-2 here comes the strikeout it's going to happen 
everybody knows that it happens. There's no booing. There's no, it's just, you just go back to the dugout and you can feel that rhythm. And then when that doesn't happen to the pitcher, it's like, all right, well, well shit, I didn't get a, like, now what do I do? What's, what's plan B? What's plan C? How do I get this guy out? Um, the pitchers are still in the lead because stuff is so good, but it, it breaks some of that, like, okay, I didn't just get ahead and now the at-bat's over. Um, and we watched a few pitchers this year, truly, like, just kind of melted down or just gave up a few runs because it was like, all right, I don't, I don't have a feel for um, the flow of this game because this team is attacking me differently. So I think that's where I would kind of push things, where you just kind of come back to some sort of equilibrium where there's very, 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 very complete hitters, and then there's hitters who are really one-dimensional um, I don't know that necessarily like stolen bases and those things, but but guys who are super aggressive base runners, I think guys like Ozzy Albies can really, I think those guys can have a, a ton of value because, you know, maybe it's less on base percentage, but because they can do so many different things that, um, I don't know, it's it just become a little bit weird these last few years, even being a fan of analytic baseball, it is becoming a little bit harder to watch because there's just so many wasted at-bats with two strikes wasted a bats with two outs and a runner attacking. Like, you know, you really could just be trying to hit differently here and just, even if you bloop a single, that turns into an RBI single. That's a run and runs really matter. And it's just so much of this, like, all right, you're still just taking your same exact swing that you took on 0-1 and 1-0. I don't think that's the best way to go about it. Well, it really is counterintuitive to the founding principle of all of this stuff that started with Bill James, which is just that you should never give away an out, right? That outs are the right. absolute worst thing. And really, what you're, what I'm hearing you say is that with this launch angle thing is kind of, it's. I don't think the players think of it this way, but the way they're approaching these at bats is that they're not trying to avoid the out. They're they're instead focusing on the home run or the double as opposed to just not getting the out. Yeah, you're kind of leaning into the fact you're going to make an out, but you're – the that original – the sack bunting I still think is stupid. I don't think there's a benefit in that. I think with no outs, the hitting – you know, putting the ball on the ground, hitting it to the right side to move the runner over to third, if it's a byproduct of what just happened, if you just happen to hit it over there, great. If that's where the pitch is pitching you, but to go up to the plate and to have a good two hole hitter thinking I'm going to try and hit a three hopper to the second baseman. So this guy can get over. I think that's stupid, especially when that's one of your best hitters. But do I think a national league eight hole hitter or a national league seven hole hitter? It's like, listen, I just, I got to have something productive here. Like I just can't have a three pitch strikeout here. Now there's times where it's certainly, it's just going to happen. I mean, there's so much disgusting stuff right now where striking out is just almost an inevitability. You, you can't do, this stuff is so overmatched. Um, but at least if there's more of a thought of not all the way back to the little league, choke up, just bunt it over. But like, just, I am going my, I walk into the box with my two strike approach here. I'm just trying to put the ball on the ground. I'm just trying to get the ball over the infield. I'm just need something to happen. So something productive here. And I just didn't go up to the plate and take a three pitch, a B strikeout. And it's a guy who is trying to get the ball in the air and like, might end the season with 13, 14 home runs, which I think to sneeze at, but it's like, all right, that's, that was 13, 14, but there was just a humongous pile of wasted at-bats to get to those numbers, and I don't know if there's as much value in that. Well, the last team to really do that effectively was the 2014-15 Royals teams, and I mean, a lot of their success did come from 
you know, their amazing bullpen. But I do think that a lot of sabermetric people kind of dismiss them as this really good playoff team, even though they, they just never struck out. There there was just not really a strikeout, um, you know, in, in kind of their four or five best hitters. And I think that was like a really overlooked thing and their success. And I think the larger baseball community has kind of just ignored that overall. Yeah, I, I don't disagree at all. I, and the Giants, like, they're still kind of like they're uh, – mm-hmm. I don't I fucking hate pitching against them. I mean, they're just they're, they're on everything. Um, they feel like they're just really hard to strike, especially for me, who's not a high strikeout guy. You can't abuse people and stuff. So, like, they're just – it feels like they're always ready to hit and they're going. And um, there's times where, yeah, that makes for a quick game and someone who's really on can just run through them. But same with – a team that goes high strikeout. So, like, those teams give me fits, and I think they give a lot of other guys fits, too. And if you can do that with really good hitters and you build your lineup for that, I think you have a good chance. I mean, obviously, you need 100 other things, and you need a good bullpen, you need some starters. But I think offensively it's a good approach to have that. There are guys who can leave the yard and really make things messy in a hurry, but there's a lot of guys who are like, through this, if we take the next two innings and we get one run out of this through these six hitters, but because we just – we kept going, we kept going. I don't know. That might be better than lineups that are built to just maybe get a home run in those innings and maybe not. So that's the, that's the hitting approach that we were just talking about. But something that I wanted to ask you about was this Houston Astros spin rate stuff and also the, the Trevor Bauer accusation. I don't know how much you know or even would want to talk about it, but I do think the spin rate thing is really interesting because they're just making, like, Charlie Morton and Garrett Cole just these, like, amazing, insane starters and is, like, I mean, what's your opinion, first of all, on the accusations, I guess? I don't know. I mean, those guys have done a lot of research up at Driveline and studied things that it's hard for me to even say I haven't. I talked to Kawhi that often, and I haven't even – I didn't – when all that was out, I didn't even ask him yeah. what they had found or what that was. Um, so that's so much Trevor and another thing that, that I've left it be, and I don't I don't really care, I guess, until, like, I'm confronted with that information. Um, but, yeah, what the, what the Astros are doing is something pretty special. Yeah, and I think that – there are th- there are advancements to be made in baseball that uh, we don't like we don't know yet like there it's it's to be undiscovered and so i think the idea of baseball being like a solved game i do think it is a little bit uh overblown right now but i mean I, coming from a coming from a player's perspective what would be your suggestion to the mlb commissioner and department in terms of marketability and promotion of the game um, I don't. I would stop getting in your own way. I, 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 this the speed of the game. I think is important. I don't understand mountain visits. I don't see how that was. Um, you know, I think someone did it. It's like obviously time in between pitches is where it all is. It's just we mm-hmm. can call it what it is. Like you need pitches to go faster, and you need hitters to get in the box. It's, those are the two things that if both those things are streamlined a little bit. Um, then everything would just move way quicker. Um, I don't think we need to overcomplicate the the pace of the game without addressing those two things and then just leaving it. Um, other marketability, I don't. I, we're kind of like we're like halfway, like one foot into being hockey, where it's just sort of like we don't need a lot of a lot of attention. Let's keep it. You don't want to be the 
the guy who sticks out like a sore thumb, which is hockey very good at. Um, but then we also don't. We have guys who do want that, and so, like, we try to market them. So it just becomes this weird, like, are you marketing your players or aren't you? And then you talk to the best players, and some of them are just very, very boring, very, very plain. They just want their – like, I, I I don't know how you market that. I, um, the baseball doesn't have a LeBron. Like, that's just definitely true, which, which no, is hampering but, for well, baseball. Well, I, and it's not their fault either, though, I don't think. And I don't think you, I don't think you can. I mean, you, there is no baseball player who has the effect that a call that a quarterback does or that a dominant NBA player does. You just you can't tune into an. I mean, if you tune into an MLB baseball game, uh, the starting pitcher, or if you're tuning into a playoff game, the starting pitcher has the best chance for being a guy who, you, you know, you watched the postseason a couple of years ago. It's Bumgarner, but if you turn it on this year and it's Scherzer. Okay, if you happen to watch the game Scherzer throwing, he might take it over and you go, Jesus, that was just, that was incredible, that was dominant. But then you turn on the next night, you're like, all right, I want to see that Scherzer guy again. You're like, well, he doesn't throw again until four days from now. It's like, well, then, okay, so that was the dominant guy. Like, all right, who's the guy offensively now? And it doesn't mean that guy, you know that the game comes to the end. LeBron's going to get the shot where we can talk about him at the end. If they're down, he's going to have been the biggest force in the game no matter what. It doesn't mean Bryce Harper is. If you just pitch around him, if you do something or he doesn't come up in that situation. Then yeah, it's just not his turn to come up in the ninth. It's it's Wilmer Defoe, and that's just what, and you know, the average person doesn't know who that is, and they turn their TV off. Exactly. And so you've, you've left that game, and you go, well, the Scherzer-Harper thing, like those are the guys that you were marketing to me. They didn't really have any effect on the outcome of that game. You're like, yeah, well, hang with them. I, I mean, I don't know how you, how you sell that. I mean, how do you sell – how do you sell golf if Tiger and Mickelson and others aren't in contention on Sunday? It's like, just please watch what we have for you. Like, it's really good. We promise. But the answer is that no one watches golf outside of the majors. If Tiger's not playing, the numbers are horrible. No one watches it. Right. Right. So you can't, how do you, you can make interesting personalities. You can have them talk, but like you can only force feed so much. Um, I really, I don't know. I don't know what crosses over what, what creates it? I think, I think we're already kind of station. We're like overblown with you're fed so much with social media that like, and your own information, like you can watch Netflix, you can watch any show you ever wanted. You can watch it on demand. It's like, if I'm only 10% interested in baseball, I don't know that you can market it to me to get me to watch more. And it's the same with other sports. Like I just don't, I don't care for the NBA. So like nothing got me to watch anything that happened this year. Like, I know LeBron is doing inhuman stuff. I know Golden State's good, but it's like I can watch old episodes of Friends or I can watch new rest of development. I can do things like I just prefer a little bit more than the NBA, so I'll just do those. And I think that's the problem with marketing now, sports as a whole, because we all have so many other things we can be doing that if you're not in love with it, Watch it. Yeah, there's content overload. So if it's not your your absolute favorite thing, like literally, what's the point? Right. I mean, uh, like, there will be people who prefer to listen to this podcast over watching a sport, watching the U.S. Open this weekend. Like, okay, well, what the hell was I supposed to do to market to them? Like, I didn't know we had to like go up against this very niche thing. Like, um, so I don't know. The, the marketing of baseball things, we do get our own way. Time after time after time after time after time, and that doesn't help us. But I don't think that's stopping us from becoming this national phenomenon again, where we're on the front page of our paper and people can't stop talking about baseball. I think we're just talking about little decimal points that 
So speaking of uh, split attention, there's something that you and I actually have in uh, in common in that we're both pretty into like the big European soccer leagues and matches. Um, first of all, is that common at all in the clubhouse or are you just like completely isolated in that? There's usually a few guys uh, in every clubhouse. This one, uh, Ender Enziarte, is a massive, massive Real Madrid fan. Um, oh, so that was fun for you guys. Fan. Yeah, that made it. That was a nice day. Um, he's, but he pays attention to soccer all over the world. And then um, usually there's a good amount of like Latino players that are familiar with or do pay some attention to. Um, and then a few other players here and there, but it's a lot of it's based around playing FIFA or having some familiarity from that. But um, I've met a few other guys who are really into it, but um, it's not a, not a large number. How did you get into soccer originally? Because I, I genuinely find that Ameri- like American people's stories of like getting really into European soccer are normally interesting. It was the Liverpool champion run, Champions League run in 0405. Um, saw the Olympiacos game, the Gerard goal to knock them, to get them through um, the group stages. Uh, that goal at Anfield, you just watch the whole place just explode. Um, I remember seeing that and being like, what the hell was that? Like, that was really, that was cool. That was a lot of emotion. I just, I very much get into fan emotion. That drives it for me. Um, and so I just, I kept following Liverpool that season. I said, I, I just get my, got my hands on whatever I could watching them. And then that's the year with Istanbul and winning the Champions League in the most ridiculous game ever. Like, well, if that's what soccer is. And that's what Liverpool soccer, this is, this is the best. And so it just became this passion after that. And I just kept following and that's been the highest, the highest sense. I didn't realize that that was, I'd be forever chasing that one, but um, that's what really pushed me over the edge there. It was pretty close. You you got pretty close to matching that high this year. This was easily the best season since Istanbul. It just ended uh, a lot sadder. Yeah, the 13, that 12-13 season, finishing second in the league, um, was really good. And, and 2008-2009, finished second in the league again, but both teams were really, really good rampaging. The 12 13, we weren't in the Champions League, so it didn't matter. But at least this year coming back, where it was like we were, I felt like as a neutral, we had to be the most fun team in Europe for people to tune in and watch. I could be, I could be wrong, but it was just, it was just breathtaking soccer over and over. Plus, we were frail defensively, so it meant that more goals were just going to keep happening. Um, so there was that like beauty to watching it again. And you didn't feel like, ah, oh, shit, it's 5 a.m. on on Saturday, I'm watching, like, I know I really love this team, but that was shit to watch. It was, you're waking up, and then by 7 o'clock, you're like, that was fantastic. That knocked my socks off. I think, um, neut- I think neutrals probably did love Liverpool. I think they probably liked them even more than City because Liverpool games where they would win 5-0 were way more fun than City games when they won 5-0. Right. I, I, City was, for a period, like, it was really just unbelievably good soccer to watch. They were great. Liverpool felt like you turned the sliders up on, on FIFA a little bit, and you're like, that's how I would play. Like, I would just send everybody on attack. You're just going and going and going at full speed, just breakneck pace and that. And a lot of pretty things are happening there. So I thought that that made sense, but I haven't talked to enough neutral fans to, to do that. But I, I think this year was – it was a lot of fun. That, that final was a complete kick in the dick, but the rest of it was was really great. Would you would you take that season like as a as a fan? Most soccer most soccer fans their team will never play 
in a Champions League final? Would you would you take that season out of like you know just kind of an average Liverpool season where they finish fourth and make the the quarterfinals but don't advance any further than that? Is it is it better to have loved than lost? Yeah, yeah, I think definitely. I mean that, um, especially as I get into retirement soon, like then it gives me a chance to like I went over to the Champions League or not the Champions League. I went over the City match this year in the Premier League, but it's like if I'm retired and I know I can go over and as a Champions League semifinal, and I can go over with friends and, and sit and watch that, like, and be a part of that experience where, like, then there's a true visceral experience that you've experienced around it that, like, obviously losing in the final would be deflating, but it's like there was a whole experience before the outside of just watching on the TV. So it, it's a connection to, like, time and memory that you can you can place. That I would I would take. The years that are just ineffectual and you're there and you, you accumulate points, but you don't do it in any special way and you just win a couple of Champions League matches, I don't. Um, can still be good, but yeah, the, the ones with a deeper run, I mean, they're still in the whole world of entire football is one team who wins the Champions League. If you're even close to that, I think is I mean, something special has happened to get there. So Mo Salah just had easily the best year of his career. It probably will be the best. It, it would be very hard for him to score 40 goals again next year. So so for Liverpool's success moving forward, who do you who do you choose, Mo Salah or Jurgen Klopp? One of them, one of them you get to have for the next five years. The other one leaves. Who do you take? Uh, Jurgen. Um, yeah, I think that one. I agree with you. I think that is the right answer. I, he, what they've done, the transfer committee with him. They, I mean, they just keep bringing over successes more or less. I mean, it's it's a pretty successful record. I mean, you to lose. Suarez a couple years ago and then to this season mid-season to actually lose Coutinho which is in all rights had a, the rights would be a, just a debilitating loss and then somehow you got better with it you moved around it to some like, he has some blind sides in his, in his system but otherwise like it's it's really really entertaining soccer watch um, I don't know I, he'd be my choice and I most of the love like but you feel like there's probably other guys waiting for that if they get in the right system that opportunity. You'd hope there'd be more of them, but um, yeah, I gotta go with Jurgen on that one. Christian Pulisic, he's coming. That's the he's coming. He's gonna take over that right wing spot when Salah goes somewhere for 150 million dollars. That's what everyone says. I had uh, I had Grant Wall on um, the like episode five of this podcast, and he's interviewed Pulisic like four times, and he he seemed. What he told me is that a lot of people in Liverpool are very confident that Pulisic is going there. I hope so. Like, that's the the rumor for the last couple of years that I feel like, like, all right, hopefully. I remember there was, like, the Clint Dempsey. You just, you, it would be nice to have an American there where you're like, oh, there's there's another connection there, and especially if it's, like, the special American. Uh, it would double that, like, that sense of pride watching them, but... I hope it happens, but even if it doesn't, it's like it's, there's enough trust in Jurgen and what they're doing there that, like, all right, if, if he goes somewhere else or he stays at Dortmund, that's fine. But it would definitely be a, yeah, be a boost to have him there. All right, so I want to close this out with something that I actually have. I don't know anything about this other than that you are involved in it. Uh, you co-own Phoenix Rising FC, which is in the second tier of American soccer with uh, Chelsea legend Didier Drogba who is an owner player. How did this happen? How did the ownership group come about? What's your, what's your role in it? Please fill me in. There was, there was an existing USL team in Phoenix, um, Arizona United, um, that I had heard about, but 
really had heard next to nothing about. They played in a spring training stadium there. They were um, no fans, really, really light as far as attendance at best. Um, and then obviously you play through the middle of summer. So it was not a, not a good experience. We, um, I have a very close friend of mine who's a business partner and a few things. He knew someone who, uh, had reached out to him and said, listen, I'm, you know, I'm actually, they had just, were talking offhand. He's like, I'm getting involved in this. And my buddy told him, well, I'm a huge soccer fan. Um, always looking to invest. And then he's like, Oh, Hey, also my good buddy, Brandon, same situation. So, we all got together, had some meetings, and then went through the plan, and the guy in charge was putting together the larger group and really bringing different groups together to complete this, buying out the team and, and taking it over. And um, once I was presented with the opportunity, I was like, yeah, this makes sense. I'd like to, especially at home, support local soccer. Um, I'd like to see this from the ground up. And there was, I thought there was money making some potential there. I thought there was a chance to be a part of something in my own backyard that I thought was very cool. Um, it was, it just kind of clicked on a million ways and it's like, this, this just makes sense. It is. It is pretty cool. I actually randomly on the reason I even remembered this was a thing was I saw a highlight of Drogba. He made like a 40 yard free kick goal. Like as like time was like winding down and one of their games the other day, like it's just, it's pretty cool that he is out there playing in the USL. Like it, that's gotta just be great for the guys on the team. Yeah, it was it's this will be his I believe it's his last season playing this year um it's been a very it's a cool thing to see the the effect of that he has on people and you realize like soccer is still popular here because he he is very much a thing when he goes out people are very aware uh we have taken him to elementary schools and taken out like where kids have lost it and they're like it's you know like you know he at Chelsea only three, four years ago, and those kids would have been much younger, but, like, they know what Drogba is. Um, you know, like, like, international soccer has a real draw here. The superstars, like, they're there. We need to tap into this. And so it's he's become a thing in the Valley. He's been he's been good for the team itself. Uh, it's, a, it's a great guy to have, to have on board as you're really trying to gain legitimacy um, at a lower level. It's like, no, we've got Drogba's playing for us. I mean, there's... That's something special. That's actually that actually fits in with uh, my long term theory that like the the path to soccer being the dominant sport in the United States, I think, is not as far off as a lot of people suggest. Just because there there is no problem with marketing soccer stars, you're you're never going to have to worry that Ronaldo or Messi is not going to have an impact on a match. And also, the the low scoring nature of soccer kind of means that anything can happen in 90 minutes like what so that we can close it out on that what is what is your take on the long-term popularity of soccer in the united states i think i think what you're saying is completely right on i i can't think of anything it doesn't hit on to just cross over to where like if you're other than the good old boy bias of the nonsense you'll hear from and i know you heard it growing up i know i've heard it like soccer's gay and this and you're like you're just an asshole and an idiot like there's there's so much of that it's like, it's boring. It's just like, you never sat down and watched a game. So one, your opinions are just completely invalid. When people sit down and watch, you realize one, it took two hours. So every, everything everybody's doing to speed up their sport has already been done by soccer. You sit down for 45 minutes, you get some food, you take a dump, and then you sit down and watch another 45 minutes, and then you go home and you're done. And that was it. And that's, like, that's a very reasonable thing to ask to see what should be a thrilling event. I mean, the sport itself is easy to understand 
you can pretend you get confused by offsides, but once you figure that out, like it's easy. Everything else is really easy to understand. And the low scoring nature, like a nil nil draw, is is awful. I mean, that's you can just call that what it is. And in, in almost any capacity, that sucks. But a one nothing win where someone scores in the 87th minute, I mean, the the release that happens on that positive and negative is incredible. And people that have really watched soccer, we experience that. You're like. Wow, that was like a little drug that got in me. What the hell was that? Like I was just really contained and then just exploded. Um, I don't know, just the release that happens with goals because it builds up so much the way it doesn't in other sports. Other sports are just more scoring. So you, you, you release sooner. You re- like it just, it doesn't feel like you're as tense the whole time in soccer. Does. So I think that combined with the fact that, like you said, your best player is going to have an impact on every match. He's just, they're going to be out there. You get to watch them for 90 minutes are going to be a part of it. I think it just makes it a very easy sport to to market and then for people to just get into casually and watch because it's, it's just accessible in a lot of ways. Personally, I would totally take the, like if the trade-off of no stoppages for low scoring is so worth it to me. Like football, if you don't have red zone, is like legitimately unwatchable. Like you, you, you cannot right. sit there and watch a football game on Fox with how often it stops. It's horrible. I, I agree. And I, at baseball, the, I, I, I can watch playoff baseball all the time. If I'm retired, I don't know how much regular season baseball I can watch unless it's really dominant starting pitchers or I'm tuning in to watch one player. Football, it's the same. Like you're, if, you, if I wasn't playing fantasy, I can guarantee I would watch no minutes of the NFL. Um, and I find myself even more and more watching less of the NFL, even being diehard into fantasy. It's just, it's, it's slow. It's, it's just kind of like, you're just too aware of, of the stoppages. Like you said, just the idea of like, just keep going. If you just keep going, I can't lose my attention. And then I get an actual 15 minute break and then I can watch again. And then I'm done. That's it. I think that is uh, I think that's a, a, f- a perfect place for us to end. Uh, Brandon, well, is there any take you you've just been dying to get off your chest in an audio format before we go? No, I probably do have one, but nothing coming to mind. I don't have anything to gripe about right now, but give it 10 minutes and something will pop into my head, I'm sure. All right. Well, everyone, that was uh, that was Brandon McCarthy. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us, man. Hey, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's going to do it for us here at the TakeCast. Don't forget that you can uh, win an entry into the Scott Fishbowl 8. All you have to do is go to my Twitter at uh, Davis Maddock. Uh, if you retweet the t- my current pin tweet, which is just explaining the giveaway, all you have to do is retweet that and uh, provide evidence of a, a review or a rating on iTunes of the show, and you will be automatically entered into a drawing to win a spot that will be announced on the 17th, uh, and you will get an entry into the Scott Fishbowl. You'll get to play with Evan Silva, Adam Levitan, Matthew Barry, pretty much anyone who... actually don't actually know if Matthew Barry's in it, I just assume, but uh, pretty much anyone who's anyone in the fantasy industry will be there, and you'll have uh, a chance to prove yourself against the greats, so... Uh, Go ahead and check that out. Hope you guys enjoyed the show uh, today and hopefully be back with another great episode here soon.